You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Um, if you weren't here last week, we started just a mini-series on uh, understanding who we are as a church. Uh, we're in between our studies in uh, Exodus, and we're heading to the book of Acts, where we'll be uh, going through it more intentionally. Right now, we've just been kind of hitting on some passages in, in, in Acts that relate uh, to who we are as a church, right? So we're thirteen, almost 13 years in on this church plant, which is crazy to think about. We're almost three years away from uh, the time where we celebrated our 10-year anniversary. And so the Lord's been uh, faithful to us over the years. Um, in between these studies, I feel like it's good sometimes for us to just step back and remind ourselves who we are as a church, why we're doing what we're doing, what it looks like to, to be involved in, in sovereign hope. And so we'll look more intentionally in that today, particularly as it relates to church life here. Uh, local churches are all very different. The types of things that local churches get involved in and how they structure services and service opportunities and discipleship opportunities. And so we want to delve a little bit more into uh, a deeper look at to why we do what we do here uh, at our church. Uh, Last week, we looked at what our church believes about the gospel. We saw how we as a church hold to a gospel foundation of worshiping Jesus as the fulfillment of God's saving story, a story that invites us to come in faith to receive his eternal grace and mercy and calls us to spread joy and contentment in him. Specifically, we saw how our gospel is very Jesus-focused. The gospel that the Word of God presents to us is a, is a gospel that is not based on man's works or man's performance. It's based on the character of God, His mercy, His grace, a character that we see in Exodus, right? We saw there when God reveals His goodness to Moses, it's a goodness that's rooted in His mercy and His grace towards sinful people, We said that the gospel can be defined as God's plan to save man from his sin through Christ for his own glory forever. It's a gospel that's Jesus-focused. It's mercy and grace-driven. We also talked about the need for perseverance, right, that we, uh, we need to stay faithful, but we also looked at how Scripture presents a picture that if we're saved, God will empower us to stay faithful. So it's a promised perseverance. We don't lose our salvation, But there's also this piece that says we have to show that we're saved, and uh, we saw that last week. And then we also looked at our responsibility to spread joy and contentment in Him, a a mission-oriented focus of showing others the supremacy of God in our life as we find joy and contentment in Him. We talked about examining ourselves last week, making sure that we're in the faith, that we've responded to this gospel, uh, being committed to uh, taking every precaution necessary to keep ourselves in the faith, Uh, holding fast to him, and then being intentional, should we ever leave Sovereign Hope, uh, to align ourselves with a faith community who holds to these same truths. Today we're looking at church life at Sovereign Hope. What does it look like uh, to be a part of this church? And so our summary sentence for today, the church, both universal and local, is God's ordained and established means of grouping and growing his people to know him, to trust him, to obey him, and to proclaim him to the present and coming generations until he returns. The church, and we're going to talk in a minute about what we mean by universal and local, but the church as a whole is God's ordained and established means of grouping his people and growing his people 
to know him, to trust him, to obey him, to proclaim him to the present and coming generations until he returns. For our kids, church is where my family learns to follow God and who my family learns to follow God with. That's what, that's what the church is. It's, it's where we come, right? We talk a lot of times about how the church isn't a place, and yet there is the, a truth to the fact that a church is a place that we come to because it's not something that we just stay isolated in in our homes. We come out and gather with other people. So the church is a gathering of people. Now, that can look different, and it can be in a whole host of places, but there is a piece of the family coming out and gathering with other families to learn how to follow Jesus together. And so there's a, a location of gathering that's a part of the church and a people that we gather with that makes up the church as well. Acts chapter 2 is where I want to turn our attention. And it's the beginning of the, the, the church, the beginning of an understanding of what local churches would look like, feel like, what they would do. This is Peter preaching a sermon on Pente- at Pentecost, and it says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So they hear this sermon by Peter. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. You see that picture of the gospel being presented through this sermon, people responding to the gospel. Peter talking about how this gospel is for them now, and it's also for these generations that are to come, right? And people are responding. And it says in verse 42, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who would believed, uh, and all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We'll see when we get to our study in Acts how this is the the, the beginning point for how we understand local churches today. It's it's people being added to the, the, the number of the followers of Christ and them gathering together, gathering around the teaching of God's word, gathering around the administering of the Lord's Supper, gathering for fellowship, for discipleship, for accountability. But this isn't the first time that God's people gather. God's people have been gathering since the beginning of time. We go all the way back to um, our study in Genesis. And as I was thinking about our church and how it fits into this long line of worshiping people, um, God reminded me of what we taught in Genesis years ago, back in Genesis chapter 4. After things kind of settle down after the, the first murder, right, where Cain kills Abel and uh, some of the, the, the consequences and fallout from that happens. It says in verse 25 of Genesis chapter 4, and, and, Abraham, or, sorry, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name 
of the Lord. They begin to have, and you could go back and listen to our sermon series on Genesis to see this, but they began to have these public times of worship together, right? Their time with God prior to sin had been Adam and Eve walking and talking with God in the garden. Well, that got, that got cut off, right? And they were pushed out of the garden, and the, the cherubim were set up to guard their uh, coming back into the garden. Now, we saw in Exodus, the cherubim also picture a place of forgiveness on the Ark of the Covenant, but it's after things settle down, they begin to worship. And this idea of calling upon the name of the Lord was a public gathering of God's people. So way back in Genesis, all the way to the book of Acts, all the way to today, where we sit today worshiping together, God's people have always gathered and they have always called upon his name. And so we get to be a part of that as a local church here, a local church here. Now, I told you there's a couple of terms that we wanted to kind of look at. That being the universal church and the local church. What, what do we mean by that? The universal church is all those who have been called out of darkness into light. All the followers of Christ of all time, both Jews and Gentiles, right? So when we say the church, we mean God's people. And we mean Old Testament, New Testament saints, uh, New Testament saints, Jews and Gentiles alike. That's the church. That's God's people, right? And we're saying that God's people have always gathered and have always worshiped together. So important for our kids to understand that, right? I, I was thinking as I was driving over to here today, you know, my dad was my pastor for nine years of my life, but it felt like an eternity, right? Felt like an eternity. Like it hit me as I was driving over here. I've been pastoring for 13 years. My dad pastored for nine, but it felt like an entire lifetime of being in that church with my dad. One of the things that was established in me is that as I grew up and as I stepped out from my family, my, my parents' house, I was going to always be in a faith community worshiping God if I'm one of his children. That that, that pattern was established in my family growing up, that, that this is what God's people do. They worship together. They gather together. Right? This is the way that God groups his people. It's not something that we came up with. It's something that he came up with. And we'll see that as the book of Acts is unpacked. But it's how we group together. It's how we grow together. So important for our kids to see that because, kids, there's coming a day where you won't be with your parents anymore. And you won't have your parents waking you up on a Sunday and saying, hey, it's time to go to church. It's time to gather with God's people. There's coming a day where you will have worked a job or cared for a family all week long. And it will be nice to think about Saturday modeling, uh, or Sunday modeling Saturday and having kind of two days where you don't have to do anything but just stay at home. Let me encourage you to see that God's people have always come out of that time of resting and come together to worship, to grow together as God's people. The universal church is everybody of all time that have followed God. You join that church by repenting of sin and having faith in Christ. But the local church is the, the local embodiment of that picture of God's people. It's a, it's a group of people who have been baptized, who join together under biblical leadership for worship, for the observance of the Lord's Supper, the teaching of the word, with the purpose of growing in the likeness of Christ and expressing his love to the world. It's characterized by regenerate membership, baptism in the Lord's Supper, biblical government, and church discipline. That's what we have in local churches all around our county. People who are gathering together, gathering under the umbrella of baptism in the Lord's Supper, gathering with the purposes of worshiping, worshiping through song, worshiping through teaching, Worshiping through fellowship, growing together, encouraging one another. 
And each local church is different, right? What it looks like to join and participate and be a part of that faith community, it looks different. You could go to any number of churches in our county and find a different process for what it looks like to align yourself and to join and to get involved. What, is it, what does it look like to be that here? We'll get to that towards the end of the sermon, but I want us to look further at the importance of the church's existence, the importance of it. I want you to see that you're part of something that began before you were born, and will continue after you die. This idea that God is rescuing fallen humanity, transferring them into his kingdom, and shaping them into his likeness, and he wants you in on it. The church is, is God's way of reconciling the world back to him. Jesus talks about uh, this to Peter, right? The idea when he tells Peter, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use you to help establish the church, a movement that, that the gates of hell won't be able to prevail against, right? Like there's been so many efforts to squash the church, to stop the church. The Pharisees worked tirelessly after the resurrection of Jesus to stop the, the rumors and the, the testimonies of people talking about a resurrected Jesus. And then all throughout history, there's been periods of persecution where people have tried to stop the messaging of Jesus. We saw through our study of Revelation that pressing against the church will continue until Jesus comes back. We're always gonna be in a state of the world pushing back against the messaging of the gospel. This is God's ordained way of reconciling his people back to him, to have these pockets of gatherings where, where the local church gathers to worship and to picture to everybody around what the gospel does in somebody's life. It's first a vehicle. It's a vehicle the church is the visible demonstration of the power of the gospel in the lives of people united with Christ. It's the vehicle Jesus has chosen to take the message of the gospel to every generation and culture. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, look what Paul says. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that, verse 10, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. He says, the church has always been God's plan. A church made up of Jews and Gentiles who have come, who have been rescued and saved from their sin through the work of Jesus Christ. It's the vehicle that he plans to use. It says to make known the manifold wisdom of God. It's always been the purpose. It's the eternal purpose, which really just goes to show us that like the church is never going to be outdated. It's never going to go away, right? Church looks a lot different uh, than it has. Uh, it looks a lot different today than it did when I was going to my dad's church nine, uh, for nine years. The, the church has changed a lot, right? There's a, there's a relevancy maybe that, that the church uh, goes through where it updates itself to, to stay relevant in the times that it's existing in. But what will not go away, what will not change is the church's existence. God will always use the church 
to make himself known to the nations. It's a vehicle, and it's the vehicle that God has chosen. It's also a picture. It's a picture of the gospel at work. Being a part of a church allows the lost and saved alike to see a visible understanding of God's changing power. Not because we memorize verses or pray for meals, not because we tithe a portion of our income, not because we listen to Christian music. That's, that's not our greatest witness to the world, right? Like we don't, we don't do these things as our, as our best picture of what the gospel does. Does it change the music you listen to? Maybe. Does it change the way that we use our money? Absolutely. Does it change how we spend our time? For sure. But one of the greatest ways that we demonstrate the, the power and the working of the gospel is through the local church as we increasingly show a willingness to forgive, to love, and to pursue unity with a group of redeemed sinners. That, that's, that, that's our greatest demonstration of the gospel. All these other things for sure are a testimony of what God's work does in our hearts. But one of the greatest examples that we can show as the church, and that's why we need each other to show this picture, because we could in isolation give our money away, right? And show that we love Jesus more than our money. We could, we could listen to different music or take up different hobbies or change our hobbies. or We could do a lot of those things differently because of Christ. But one of the things that the church gives, gives to us that we need each other for is to show the world what it looks like to live with a bunch of people who aren't perfect, to do life together with people who aren't perfect, and to model what it looks like to forgive and to love and to be unified around the gospel. That's what the world needs to see. A world that is oftentimes at strife with, it, with itself needs to see a different way of doing things. And that's what 1 John 3 pictures. We won't take the time to read it, but you could look at 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 highlights over and over and over again how important it is for us to see if we're Christians, we love each other. If we're Christians, we pursue unity with one another. If we're Christians, we forgive one another. That's, what's, that's why it's so damaging to the, not to the gospel, but to the picture of the gospel when churches go through strife and turmoil and fighting, right? Because what that tells the community is, hey, they're not that much different than the world because that's what the world does. The world fights and finds strife with itself, right? The church isn't perfect and churches certainly go through those times, We've been blessed in the 13 years of being here in existence that we don't have time periods that we look back to and say, here's a time period of strife and anger and turmoil and fighting within this church. I'm so thankful that the Holy Spirit has worked and moved in our hearts to keep us unified, to keep us loving and forgiving one another. Not because we haven't made mistakes. We've made mistakes as leadership. We've made mistakes as membership, right? It's not anything that we're doing beyond the Holy Spirit working and moving to keep us forgiving and loving one another as we pursue unity. And that's what the church is meant to be. It's the vehicle that pictures to the world what it looks like to experience the mercy and grace of God. We're to, we're to demonstrate the character of God, right? That mercy and grace as we demonstrate it to each other. And then lastly, it's a testimony. Gathering together as the local church, assembling particularly on Sundays, serves as a testimony to others of our hope in Christ's resurrection and return. Think about what 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six tells us. It's a, a, a kind of a, a walkthrough of how to partake of the Lord's Supper, and it, it culminates with the idea that 
you partake the Lord's Supper, and by doing so, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we gather on Sundays, we partake of the Lord's Supper together, and one of the things that we're teaching the coming generation, we're teaching our kids. And we had a great teaching time last week as we baptized people. And we were able to communicate to our kids who have yet to put their faith and trust in Christ. This is what it means. This is what it looks like. But that's also what the Lord's Supper does. The Lord's Supper pictures to the coming generation, this is what it means that Christ is resurrected. This is what it means to hope in his return. The church's existence is so important because it's God's vehicle to picture and to testify to the world that Christ is alive and that Christ is coming. There's an importance for church connection as well. So not just for the church to exist, but for us individually to tap into that existence, for us to tie ourselves to the existence of the church. A passion for the church is found in both Christ and his followers. The New Testament never conceives of a Christian existing on a prolonged basis outside fellowship of the church. Church membership also serves as an outward sign of the inward reality. We join a local church to show we are spiritually part of the universal church. All right, so it's a, it's a theme that runs particularly as we get into the New Testament and that church language is adopted. It's a theme throughout the New Testament that Christ loves the church, Christ died for the church, and Christians join themselves to churches. Right, that they, they put themselves into a community of faith, that they, they tie themselves to it and say, this is where I will live out the gospel. This is where I will seek to love and to forgive and to, to pursue unity and to serve as a demonstration that I'm a part of the universal church. I'm going to find the local church to be a part of, to live out what's true about me because of what God has done through the gospel in my life. Why do we need church connection? Why is it so important? Why couldn't we just forever, you know, stay at home and just listen to podcasts throughout the week and say, okay, I'm getting, I'm getting what, what a lot of happens on Sunday morning through just listening to it, right? There's certainly people who can't physically gather because of their, their, their health condition maybe right now, right? So we're not speaking to those who, who can't gather. What we are speaking to are those who can and why they should, Why should we gather in the form of a local church? Well, it starts with practical application. The local church provides a place for practical application. Believers need the church to carry out the commands given in the word. God has designed the Christian life for us to grow together as believers as we encourage one another. We're to to carry out the commands given in the word. We're, We're to... Um, to grow together as believers, to encourage one another. Let's highlight a few verses that would point us in this direction. Uh, John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. This is Jesus talking to his disciples as he anticipates leaving. This is uh, around the, the last supper. Okay, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We need a a practical place to live out that love for each other. A practical place, again, to show others outside the gospel community, outside the faith family, outside the kingdom of God, 
what it looks like inside. We're to model that by the ways that we love one another. Uh, let's jump to... Philippians 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul pictures this idea of us standing firm together in one spirit with one mind, striving for the advancement of the gospel. Hebrews chapter 10 is another passage that talks about how crucial it is for us to gather together for practical application. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's that practical application that we need. We need to be able to live out the things that we read in scripture. We need to be able to live out the love that we're supposed to give to others. We're to gather together. We're to stir each other up to love and good works. Practical application. Secondly, spiritual leadership. Believers need godly leadership to submit to as added protection from false teaching and deception. All the, all the, the warnings in the book of Hebrews about being careful not to fall away from the faith. Spiritual leadership within the church is given as a means of protection. In Acts chapter 20, verse 29, I know that after my departure, this is Paul talking here, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. We need people to protect us from, from, the, uh, from the false teachers that will come. Look what he says to the, to the leadership specifically. Um, let's see, in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So Paul's talking specifically to the leadership and he says, hey, Christ died for this church. Now you have been tasked to help protect it, to keep it protected from false teachers, those that would seek to wreck the faith of these young believers. We need spiritual leadership in our life to help hold us accountable, to help tie us to the church. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We oftentimes talk in our membership process to people who are looking to join and to come and be a part of this church, that one of the things that makes membership important is this passage right here, because we as elders are tasked with a responsibility to watch over the souls of our flock. Well, one of the ways that we know who our flock is and who we're supposed to be held accountable for is through church membership. It's the, the willful 
uh, individual coming and saying, hey, I want to put myself here. I want, I want to put myself under the leadership of this church here. I want you to be my protection. It's why we encourage people to come and to visit for a while and not to, to jump right in and say, hey, I want to be a part of this church. Well, you might have liked what you saw on your first Sunday, um, but you need to get to know us as leadership because church membership, coming and being a part of this is to place yourself under our care. You need to make sure that you trust us, that you know us, that you want Uh, us to be the ones who care for you. There's practical application, there's spiritual leadership, and then there's also personal accountability that comes through church connection. Believers need added protection from brothers and sisters in Christ to help avoid sin and its temptations. 1 Corinthians 5, we're gonna, uh, we've already been talking about this in our, our C groups and D groups, the idea of what it looks like to, to help pull people out of sin right? When they become blinded to it themselves, when they need restoration. Believers need protection. They need accountability. They need other believers in their life. They need other people who say, hey, I love you. I care for you. I want what's best for you when it comes to the, to the spiritual understanding of things. And, and we need that. We need that in our life. What formal church membership does is it clarifies for the local church who she's responsible for, both for the leaders and for our members, Who should we be caring for? Who should we be encouraging? Who should we be discipling? Who should we be serving alongside? Who's with us and who do we need to be with? Who's with us and who do we need to be with? The importance of church connection. So let's, as we kind of look towards wrapping this up, let's look toward what this looks like specifically at Sovereign Hope, right? Many of you have been coming for a long time. Many of you have been members for years, but it's worth reminding ourselves who we are, and where we came from when we started. Our church was planted in September of 2011 by a group of people uh, who desired to learn and to teach others to hold fast to the hope of Jesus Christ's glorious return. I hope that the, the longer you're here, the more you hear that we are hoping in the return of Jesus, right? That, that desire to plant a church that didn't shy away from the idea of Jesus coming back. Because as I grew up, I felt like I came from a church that only focused on the return of Jesus when it was appropriate on a Wednesday night in a Revelation Bible study. But beyond that, I didn't hear a whole lot about Jesus coming back. I didn't hear a whole lot about being ready for that glorious day. And it wasn't until I began to study uh, my own personal studies in uh, not just Revelation, but all the passages of Scripture that talk about Jesus coming back that I realized Man, the New Testament authors can't get over this idea that Jesus is coming back and that it's our glorious hope, the return of Christ. And so we wanted to plant a church that pointed people to this fact that we are to hold fast until Jesus comes. And so our mission statement was birthed out of that idea that we're a body of believers who've been saved by the work of Jesus Christ and we're committed to spreading joy and contentment in him as we learn to hold fast to the hope of his second coming together. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 is that verse where we see so much of that packaged. The idea of us meeting together, growing together, that grouping that we said at the beginning in our summary statement. The church is where we group and it's where we grow as we wait for Jesus to come back for us. All the more as we see the day drawing near is what Hebrews tells us in verse 25. Sometimes we're asked, uh, you know, where did your church name come from? The idea of sovereign hope. And I wanted to unpack that just a little bit too, because 
as you've joined our church and as you're considering joining, I want you to know like what, what's, what's contained in that, that terminology, the idea of sovereign hope. I would say that our name uh, reflects what, what you might could call a, a cheat code that I believe we have as Christians, a cheat code. I, I remember growing up um, playing video games. I was never too much into video games that revolved around like adventure or storytelling. I was far more drawn to the, uh, the sports video games, right? Uh, but there was a time in my life where I got really involved in, in some of those storytelling games. And, and one of the games that I really enjoyed playing, I never owned it myself, but anytime I went to somebody else's house who had this game, I would always say, let's play Contra. Let's play Contra. It was a game where you had a, had a gun and you were shooting bad guys and, and it was super fun. And you could have this one particular gun that was like a spread gun, and it had bullets that would just go everywhere, and it would kill all the bad guys like at one time. But you couldn't play Contra without this secret code that gave you like what felt like infinite lives, like you couldn't die. I think it was like 30-something lives that you were just gifted right off the bat. I still remember the code to this day. Like I knew exactly how to punch that in on my Nintendo controller, and it was like, boom, there's all my lives that I need. And basically, it just allowed you to play the game for as long as you wanted, really, without having to start back over because you had like what felt like infinite lives. I believe the concept of sovereign hope gives that to us as believers, this cheat code for going through life that allows us to accept anything and everything that comes our way with joy and contentment. The idea of God's sovereign control over my circumstances and the hope that I have in his return, it's my cheat code. It's what allows me to get up every day and not despair. It's what allows me to get up every day holding fast to what I was taught as a four-year-old and a five-year-old and to never waver from that because I believe he's always in control. He's always good. A common theme that I hope you, you get around here as you stay longer and longer is that we believe that God is always good. We saw that in our study in Psalms, in Psalms chapter 16, verse five. Psalm chapter 16, verse five. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. If you, was, if you were here for this study in Psalm, you'll remember that I told you that uh, I have a hesitation of drinking things or eating things if I don't know what it is and where it's come from. I don't just taste things when people tell me to taste them, like, hey, taste this, you'll love it. I'm not going to taste it until you tell me what's in it. I'm just not going to. There's too many things that I don't like for me to be tricked into believing that what you think is good is good for me. So I don't do it. I don't drink things unless I know what's in that cup. I want to know. But what the psalmist tells us here is you can drink from the cup of God and not always know what the contents are and believe that it's very good for you. You can trust that your lot lines, your place of dwelling, wherever it is that God places you, whatever circumstances God gives you, they're good, they're pleasant, they're for purposes, right? We can trust, and what we believe here at Sovereign Hope is that our lot lines are always right, and as we saw in Exodus 13, our travel routes are always best, right? It's a God who doesn't take them this way when they leave Egypt, He instead takes them this way to preserve their faith so that their faith doesn't crumble, so their faith doesn't uh, cripple itself in fear. 
We serve a God like that who's completely in control, guides us and directs us for his good purposes. That's what it means, his sovereignty, his control. It's not just that he has all the power, it's that he controls it for good purposes for us. Hebrews chapter 6 helps us to see this. If you read our website, you'll see that there's, there's multiple verses that are listed there from Hebrews that tie into our, our church's understanding of sovereign hope and, and the ideas of our, our, our um, souls being anchored to Christ and holding fast to him with hope. Hebrews chapter 16, sorry, Hebrews chapter 6, we'll start reading in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for ref- we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What's happening in this passage? It's God communicating to our spiritual father, Abraham, that he is going to bless him, that he is going to be good to him, that he is going to preserve him. And we're told that when, when God wanted to really solidify it, a God who doesn't change, a God who doesn't lie, makes a covenant. A covenant typically is reserved for people uh, to make amongst themselves because they don't trust each other, right? Like, uh, I'm in the process of, of getting some work done on our new house. What do, what do contractors want? They want something signed, and they want a deposit down because me just telling them, hey, I'll pay for it at the end, isn't good enough. God, who doesn't change makes a covenant, doesn't have to, but does so, two unchangeable things. A guaranteed covenant with a God who doesn't change, who doesn't lie, promising to be good to his people. And this is what we have. This strong encouragement to hold fast to this hope. A sure and steadfast anchor of our soul. A hope a hope that's preserved by one who went into the Holy of Holies, as we talked about in Exodus, one who went into there as a high priest who's made it possible for us to enjoy this God forever. His sovereign, his sovereign rule anchors our soul. That's where our name comes from, this belief in a God who is in control always for the good of his people. And then secondly, this idea of hope. A promised hope, a return of hope. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, we've already looked at it. The truth that's contained there is that he is controlling everything. He's moving everything for this glorious day when Jesus comes back. This hope that one day he is returning. We hold fast to this confession of hope without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. He's sovereign. He rules this universe as he created it. There's hope and assurance there that he works everything for the good of his children, Romans 8, 28. Hope, we anxiously await for the return of our king who is our blessed hope. As a church, we're striving to fight sin and to enjoy Jesus as we seek to spread the gospel to the nations. 
He's our treasure, and we can't wait for him to come back. Titus chapter 2 pictures us waiting for him as a church. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, for by the grace, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. He's sovereign, he's in control, and he's our hope. And he's our hope. Lastly, our doctrine, our processes, and our programs here, this is where we start to, to, to deviate and differentiate ourselves from maybe other local churches, right? Oftentimes we're asked, um, you know, who are you as Sovereign Hope from a, from a denomination standpoint, right? We've always told people that we don't really affiliate with a specific domin- denomination. We do affirm to the historical beliefs of the Baptist faith. So oftentimes I'll tell people like, hey, most of us that helped start this church uh, came from a Baptist background. So if you're used to, to Baptist doctrine, you'll probably be very comfortable with a lot of that. But we also have people who've come from other denominations who've been able to find a home here too. And so one of our reasons for not Uh, being so dogmatic with a particular denomination is that people have all kinds of different experiences from those different denominations. Our hope is that people can come and see that we teach God's word. We're going to teach it faithfully at all times, um, but it's always going to to point us back to Jesus. Um, And so uh, while we don't have a specific denomination that we affirm necessarily here um, at Sovereign Hope, we do come from a Baptist background, but in practice, we strive to be Christ-centered, prayer-focused, fellowship-minded and gospel-driven in every, in every area of our life. I put in my notes just some things to remind ourselves of. We're going to hold loosely to the traditions that are unique to our church with a goal of remaining relevant, fresh, and flexible in our approach while never wavering from the commanded practices in Scripture. What does that mean? It means that what I love about being a part of this church is that we've never been so dogmatic as always doing things the way that we've always done them. Like we're always evaluating how we are packaging opportunities for fellowship, discipleship, and accountability, right? If you've been here since the beginning, you've, you've seen that. You've seen that our small groups have looked different over the years. Our, our discipleship groups have looked different over the years. We're always evaluating, are they still effective? Are they still doing what we want them to do? And when they stop being effective, we look to make changes. We look to adjust the ways that we do church here while always remaining true to the things that are commanded, right? So we'll never stop baptizing people. We'll never stop taking the Lord's Supper. We'll never stop gathering to sing. We'll never stop gathering to teach God's word, right? We'll never stop gathering. These are things that are commanded in Scripture, right? What's not commanded in Scripture is that you have to have small groups once a month or twice a month or every week. Nowhere in Scripture is it commanded that you have to have men's groups and women groups that meet a certain amount of times for you to check boxes. And so we're always evaluating how effective those things are. What's also something that you won't really ever hear from us is a command or an appeal to be obedient to the structures that are set up here, right? Which means that as a member of our church, what we want is for you to gather with us for purposes of fellowship, discipleship, and accountability, realizing that your schedule is not always going to allow you to be a part of everything happening here, right? But what we want to do is to provide ample opportunity for you to find the things needed to hold fast to your faith, for you to jump in and be a part of as much as you can and want to be a part of 
around this idea that we gather to stir each other up to love and good works until we see the day that Jesus comes back. We want to to picture something that we're going to see in the book of Acts, a New Testament understanding of, of the church, a place where fellowship, discipleship, and accountability is seen regularly. Those are, those are things that I think embody what we are trying to be here at Sovereign Hope, a place where we fellowship, a place where discipleship is available in, in various ways, a place where accountability can be found too. Sunday mornings is a priority for us. That, that's, the, that's the time that we gather to celebrate the fact that Jesus is alive, right? And so, so we want as many people that we can get to be a part of this not so that we can drive our numbers up, because we believe this is a priority, gathering together in a corporate setting like this. Now, we're going to have small groups, C groups, D groups, uh, these things that we, we put in place as a structure to give you a place to come as you can, as you're able, as your schedule allows for that, that fellowship, discipleship, and accountability to be built upon, right? But another thing that's unique to our church that, that this is a good day to remind you of is that we don't have a whole lot of programs in place because what we do want is for what we call gospel connections to be happening in our church. That's where you say, hey, some of the things that are structured at Sovereign Hope don't fit my schedule, but what I can do is invite people into my life and seemingly invite myself into the lives of others through what we call gospel connections. That's you spontaneously creating opportunities for fellowship, discipleship, and accountability with the people of this church. We're not gonna plan everything for you. Some churches do that. Some churches are kind of a a cookie-cutter box of, hey, you can come in and have everything planned for you. And that works for some people. But as schedules have gotten busier over the years, what we've realized is that we can put a lot of work and effort into planning certain things and it not fit people's schedules. But what can work is people in the church saying, hey, why don't you come over to my house tonight? Why don't you come over to my house tonight and let me invest in you as a, as a maybe a, an older, more mature married couple into a couple who's just gotten recently married, right? Like these gospel connections of moms saying, hey, I'm gonna be at the park today. I'd love for anybody else in this church who has kids to come be at the park too. Or even if you don't have kids, just come hang out with us. Just come participate in fellowship with us. That's what a gospel connection is in this church. It's when our members are planning things themselves for fellowship, discipleship, and accountability. So where does that leave us today application-wise? Number one, for you to evaluate your pursuit of fellowship, discipleship, and accountability and make sure you're set up to hold fast until he returns. If you're a member of our church, if you've been visiting our church, For you to take a a self-evaluation and say, am I putting myself in position to hold fast until Jesus comes through fellowship, discipleship, and accountability in this local church? Am I putting myself in here enough? Am I putting myself around these people enough to hold myself faithful until Jesus comes back? That's That's the church working together to stir each other up, to love and good works until Christ returns. But then secondly, evaluating your participation in fellowship, discipleship, and accountability, and make sure that you're setting others up to hold fast until he returns too. It's a two-way street, right? Like we can't have everybody just saying, hey, this is what I need, and therefore that's what I'm doing. There's also a perspective that says, what do other people in this church need from me? How can I come alongside them to help hold them fast until Jesus comes? That's what we do as a church. That's the practical application. That's the vehicle. That's the testimony. It's a group of people 
who have committed together to say, we're going to hold fast till Jesus comes back. We're going to hold fast and we're going we're to encourage one another and stir each other up to remember that he's sovereign, that he's in control, and that we can hope in him forever. My hope is that we can continue to be that. We've, we've been pursuing that for 13 years. I hope that the Lord gives us 13 years more and beyond where we can be a place to do that together, where we can see his sovereign control and we can continue to hope in it together. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you that Christ came to die for the church. You've rescued a people back to you. And God, we don't deserve it. We know that we're sinners. We know that our good works would never make up for the evil that we've uh, wrought in our hearts. But God, we're thankful that you're a merciful and gracious God who forgives us, who extends relationship to us simply because of your character. God, we're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for local churches where we can be a demonstration of the gospel to one another what it looks like to be saved and forgiven, what it looks like to love and to forgive others around us. God, I pray that we would remain committed to the church because you're committed to the church. You need to move forward. Help us to to always see that uh, church connection is is what you desire for your people. It's your your ordained means for how to uh, push the gospel to the ends of the earth. God, I pray that our people that are here would find opportunities for fellowship and discipleship and accountability. Those, those three pillars that are so needed, that are such a theme throughout the New Testament. We need to be in fellowship with one another. We need to, to learn more about you, to trust you, to obey you, to grow in our knowledge of you. And we do that best together. We need that discipleship. And we need the accountability. We need people who, who know us well enough to, to speak truth to us when we need it to give wisdom to us when we need it, to pull us out of falling away when we need it. And so God, I pray that this would be a place where people can find that on Sunday mornings, as much as they can be and involved in our, in our groups that happen throughout the week and throughout the month. But God, I pray that it would also be a place where they can, they can plan some of those things themselves in this church through these, these people that gather here that we don't have to wait for the church to plan something, that we can plan our own times for fellowship and discipleship and accountability too. Lord, I pray that you would continue to use this church as a vehicle, as a place of practical application, as a testimony to this community of the work that you've done in our life, that it would point people to you, to Christ, and your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.